0: we <laughs> Welcome to Episode Party, the podcast where we talk about our favourite podcasts. I'm Jack Tudor. I'm Freddie Harrison. And our guests this time are Adam and Bob from Diane, which is a incredible podcast about the TV show Twin Pigs. Hello to both of you. Hi there, thanks for having us on. Hello chaps, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Uh, so we're going to dive into the recommendations. Freddie, you're going to kick us off on an uh, unintentionally music-themed edition of the show. So what have you got?
1: Yeah, I, once once I saw what everyone else's recommendations looked like, I, I, I kind of felt the need to uh, to bring this one in. I had to ask Jack for special permission to break a, 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 co- a sort of episode party rule, which is that we try not to repeat recommendations as much what, as possible. What are one
0: to pick as well, based on the title?
1: Yeah, yeah, fancy that. <laughs> um, didn't even think about that, but I love that. Um, we 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 bought a broken record quite a long time ago now, and I think one of the criticisms that came up originally when we when we last spoke about it was that it appeared to be dead in the water. There was one pilot episode, which was with Eminem, and after that there was there was no other episodes, and it just looked like a completely dead project, which was a real shame because it was like something that I think on paper it sounded like a, like a good idea for a show like Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin talked to artists about music and I think you know their tagline something like uh, liner notes for the digital age which is which is cool and that Eminem episode was was okay it wasn't amazing but it was it was good and but then there was nothing and we we were kind of all a bit disappointed by it and um, I I revisited the the show like not that long ago and realized that they've got like two seasons now uh, out of nowhere Um, there's (laughs) been a lot of stuff going on uh, and back behind the scenes Malcolm Gladwell started his own podcast now. Work and all this kind of stuff and i think that's probably booted it up a little bit um so i thought it would be a good chance to give this show a bit of a reappraisal really and um flag that there's some there's some really brilliant episodes on there so the, the episode that i chose um was uh the second half of a two-parter with Questlove, who's the drummer from The Roots, um, DJ, he does all sorts of stuff. Um, Really interesting guy and probably well warranted like a two-part episode But I particularly enjoyed the second part um, for for a few reasons. There's some actual drumming in it, like a small, different, like a tiny bit of drumming. I don't think there's as much drumming as (laughs) I was kind of like, it was like, it was hammed up as this like thing where they're like, we talk to musicians, then we get them to play music for us. And I think that the amount of actual like playing of music was quite minimal, but I appreciated that it was in there all the same. Um, And then he does this brilliant story about DJing at the White House and how like he thought it was going to be this brilliant moment in his life where he he did something really like sensational and, and wonderful and um uh, Barack Obama's kids just weren't loving it and uh, i think Barack Obama asked him to play something different and it and he just he felt like eternal shame from it all um which i just find like kind of funny as a story i i really like this show i i, I don't think it's doing anything hugely special um except for the fact that by virtue of the the hosts, you, they get access to some pretty interesting people that they they manage to interview. So, in that basis, I, I really really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I just I just thought it was it was quite a nice listen. Like I say, I don't I don't think there's anything remarkable about it. I just think it was it was just a it was just a good listen. Jack, what what did you reckon? Well, it's better than the pilot because I don't even know what to think of that.
0: But this is, I mean, this clearly is like what they ended up wanting to do like i understand their host dynamic now like what they were really trying to achieve which is like you've got rick rubin who's obviously you know mega record producer he's the guy with the kind of music know-how who can get super technical on stuff and talk about mixing talk about how to record instruments talk about coming up with ideas and deconstruct songs and then you've got malcolm gladwell whose job that from what I could see was to sort of be quiet for a bit and then when he worries that it's getting a bit too about Pro Tools to kind of haul (laughs) it out and be like what about creativity more generally and then they talk about something which perhaps speaks more to his skill set which is creativity and writing and stuff and it is quite funny I thought how sometimes he'll chirp up and be like "Oh, that that bit sounds a lot like my experiences as a writer just to sort of like drag in some uh, personal uh, element from his side as well, which is a bit more difficult. But um, I mean, obviously, uh, Questlove is a, a really good storyteller. I enjoyed his company, yeah. I listened to both parts. Mm. I think there's also the sense that he's someone who very much knows how to tell his own stories as well. I mean that White House story was incredible, but there was definitely I thought, I don't know if this is true, but a cinematic <laughs> sheen to it which perhaps wasn't quite reflected in reality how he got pulled apart yeah pulled apart pulled aside by Obama at the end and then got a, a lovely inspirational story that lifted his spirits again. Very sweet, but I don't know how much I believe all of it. I enjoyed the use of the drum set I also listened to another one with, I think his name's Ezra from Vampire Weekend, where he had a guitar and was kind of strumming along. And there's almost a sense sometimes that it's quite nice for a musician who never really wanted to have to express everything they do through words to get the option to be like... Let me play a little chord in its place and sort of talk you through it as I'm doing it. I think that's nice the The one thing I find with this podcast is I don't know that it has a focus like looking through mm. the different episodes yeah. you've got different hosts sometimes you've got uh Bruce Headlam who's the other person involved in this podcast sometimes you've got just Malcolm sometimes you've got Rick Rubin just basically bulldozing in I mean not because he wants to but because people ask him questions because he's Rick Rubin he's fascinating but you'll end up with 20 minutes about the Beastie Boys and you're like this could happen a lot if everyone asks him about the Beastie Boys Um, so and also the fact that it calls itself liner notes for a digital age I find quite insincere there are so many podcasts that interview musicians this podcast isn't special in that respect and in fact I think there are a lot more podcasts that do better emulate the sense of being liner notes to albums in that they cover albums specifically and they dig into that record and uh, I feel like that it's a nice convenient tagline that to my mind does like a tiny bit of disservice to people who are also slogging it out doing long-form interviews with musicians just like this but you know what I had fun with the interview itself. Uh, I enjoyed the Vampire Weekend one. So, I mean, and yeah, like I say, better than the pilot. So, um, Bob, what do you reckon to this?
2: Well... (sighs) Uh, I I was not feeling it, this one particularly, I'm afraid. Uh, I agreed with, like, uh, Questlove being, like, a, a good storyteller, a really good interview. Really enjoyed how he, uh, yeah, as you say, was able to um, show what he was talking about. The bit at the beginning of the part two where he was talking about uh, D'Angelo and how there was a kind of a different type of rhythm and a different kind of language of that, that he had to know, that they both needed to know each other new yeah. before they could even think about working on this project together. Um That was all fascinating. And then, and, and obviously him being able to illustrate it with the drum kit was really good. And then about seven minutes in, there's an advert. And it's like, mm, I, you know, in my <laughs> opinion, that's a bit early for right. an advert. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bit too soon. <laughs> Uh, especially when one of you is Rick Rubin, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say he's not that hard up, you know. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think he could afford to put out a podcast and not maybe have to rinse it for so much cash. Um, and then they come back, and then and I was like, did I really hear that? Uh, and I did. Uh, and then I think the next anecdote that Questlove tells is like about um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I, you know, they've been a blight on my entire life, really. I oh. do not like that band. <laughs> I'm so glad you say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to hear that, to hear him going, yeah, they're just such great guys, they all kind of love each other, and they just stop halfway through a gig to just kind of hug it out and be in the moment together. I was like, this is somewhat nauseating. And then, <laughs> uh, and then yeah, the Obama thing at the end, there's... um. Well, that started to really worry me. I think there was even another another advert before we got to it. But uh, <laughs> it, it started to worry me that, like, this only happened... This only happened two years ago, and there was this dreadful kind of um mythologizing of this moment in history uh and of this kind of well this you know of the Obama moment, if you like yeah and that mm. kind of um I find that really worrying actually it sounds like that kind of stuff that kind of mythologizing that um liberal America is indulging in at the moment that 's the sound of Donald Trump winning the next election as far as I can see mm. it 's a really kind of it's a, it's a it's a dodgy way for them to go as in like weren't things better then and it's a bit like mm, they were better in some respect certainly in like the ability of the president to you know to orate and 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 the rhetoric was better but the seeds of the situation that we have now were all being laid there and weren't being weren't being kind of dealt with and the 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 policy platform wasn't there right and it created this terrible gap that, we've, that, 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 that Trumpism was able to flood into. And, and when you hear people, you know, especially people like Gladwell, who's meant to be the, the, the TED Talk breakout superstar for, the, for, like, you know, liberal technocratic centrism in the States, going this way, it, it, it really worries me, actually, that, that they're not reckoning with their own past well enough to kind of break out of the kind of grim present. That, we've, that, that we're all sort of stuck with. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: And not, I don't really want to blame Questlove and, and uh, <laughs> Rick Rubin for, like, you know, the end of the world or anything. Uh, and, and I, uh, you know, I grew up on uh, License to Ill and Raising Hell. Rick Rubin's records uh, mean, like, a lot to me. But, yeah, I kind of came away from this whole thing... So, Obama's anecdote at the end—it was almost too perfect—an anecdote of what is wrong with Barack Obama, right? He kind of goes, "He goes, (laughs) I've got this." You know, he was so there's a there's a massacre. He has to deliver this uh, speech uh, Mm. uh, uh, for this like in this for this congregation. It's an incredibly sad thing. And then, but he kind of he's playing the crowd, and he's quite kind of quite kind of cold about that. It sounded like because he realized he wasn't playing the crowd well enough and then just kind of jumped out and delivered this song and everyone kind of goes wow man it's such a great moment he really kind of felt it and kind of dealt with it but it's also just like well it would have been much better if you'd confronted the nra about assault rifles being available it would have been better if you'd like whatever your speech had been about if you'd kind of pushed it to kind of get to the point of why these things are happening that might have been more effective than just you know making a pleasant sound at the same at the right moment um and yeah it all felt really it all felt really insubstantial like kind of not not enough there and uh yeah yeah it it left me it left me feeling it, it left me feeling more kind of quizzical and reflective than i think a podcast about yeah about music and and about whatever kind of should and i apologize for overthinking it but i, no, I came never. away from it i came away <laughs> thinking yeah not feeling right yeah
0: yeah no for sure then this is what this mm. show is about unpacking yeah. that feeling at the end of those podcasts so um adam what would do you reckon
3: uh it's interesting listening to you guys talk because uh, my feelings are uh, reflected in a lot of what you've said i actually found the story um quest up story about a bomb, a bit queasy I found hmm. the kind of perfect punchline that uh, that uh, you know is for the people, and, and apologies to listeners who haven't heard it, but I, I found it too perfect, too pat, um, and, and in fact that made me reflect upon this this idea that uh, this is a show about liner notes, that that this is liner notes from the modern age, because um, Gladwell is Martin Gladwell is as an essayist is particularly well known for. Storytelling and uh, narrativising um, complex issues. Um, mm. And uh, it felt very much in his wheelhouse. It felt very much the sort of thing yes. he would try and do. And, yes. the, tri- and the sort of thing which, um, you know, this podcast might aspire to. Um, and uh, also to um, build on your point, Jack, often this podcast isn't... Isn't uh, actually about storytelling. Sometimes it's a soapbox for Rip Rubin to go off in some digression about something or other. Because I listened to mm-hmm. a few episodes, and overall, I, d- I actually did enjoy what I listened to. But this this particular episode, um, yeah, it disturbed me for similar reasons it disturbed Bob. But there's also, but going back to this idea about storytelling, um, I noticed that it. That, that, and I, I appreciate that this is just marketing. But reading their about page, it says "Broken Record" is a show that tries to restart that conversation <laughs> right. for a world without liner notes. So, 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 so this this podcast yeah, is going to give crazy. the world liner notes, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> like it's going to heal the postmodern condition, right? And that we're gonna we're gonna do this through our through our humble little podcast. And um, <laughs> you know, I kind of I read that and it just puts me off. I'm just like, for God's sake, you know, this this podcast is actually quite. It's, it's quite whimsical, I think. Mm. You know, if you listen to a lot of the other shows, you, you're going to get a number of different flavours. Like, I listened to the show with uh, David Byrne, because I'm a huge fan of Talking Heads, and I like to listen to David Byrne. Mm. Uh, and David Byrne had come on to talk about protest songs, mm. which, which, again, that's... Um, you know, I'm not sure how the liner notes... Concept fits with that, you know. But, right. but David Byrne has done like a—he's he, done a study of uh, protest songs that he wanted to talk about, uh, and so you then—and and this generated some interesting conversation. But it was a conversation; it was uh, a bunch of people building on a number of different ideas. There was some debate about what constitutes a protest song, and, and in fact, David Byrne sometimes felt incidental um, because Rick Rubin would be just talking. <laughs> At great length, nothing wrong with it. It was interesting to hear what Rick R- Rubin had to say, particularly around um, the protest song in relation to um, a lot of uh, hip hop, etc. But at the same time, it was almost like David Byrne didn't need to be there, right? Um, like, and this is what I mean by whimsical. It was like, well. This this podcast could just be Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin having a chat sometimes. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and uh, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but I, but I just found there this weird tension between uh, how they wanted to describe their podcast and, uh, and what their podcast actually was. Yes. But like Freddie was saying, that it is really access- that their accessibility is really impressive in in the sense that they, sorry, their access to um, you know, famous performers, um, with with, you know, storied histories is mm. is really exciting and interesting. I listened to the Nile Rogers episode, uh, and that was you know Nile Rogers, he's worked with absolutely everybody um mm. and that you know that was a wonderful half an hour of listening to Nile Rogers probably tell the same stories he's
2: told a thousand times but I might not <laughs> have heard them yeah well-polished <laughs> you know? anecdotes is like the order of the show isn't exactly right? <laughs> yeah. and
3: uh, and uh, or, or, and so 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 for me it felt like a very mixed bag and a show that you know I was thinking would I go back to this show would I would i subscribe to it um i was very impressed to hear you guys talking about subscribing to obscene numbers of podcasts what was it 50 or 60 Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's 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 amazing guys well not that (laughs) much i think i think think i'd probably be divorced and my child would be in prison or something if i was to do that
2: but um that's gonna happen anyway yeah (laughs) yeah for sure
3: um but but yeah um would i subscribe to it no i wouldn't but would i check back in on it would i see who they'd interviewed and occasionally download an episode yes i would because mm. the david byrne one there was enough for me there the nile rogers one there was absolutely enough for me there and if i was a fan of Questlove, love which i'm not there would have been enough for me there with that i think uh except for the obama anecdote which kind of freaked me out so
0: wow i mean Fred- freddy what do you think Will you bring it
1: back for a third time, just to check? <laughs> no, no, I will not. Um, no, no, I mate, mean, sorry. I think I think it's I think it's absolutely fair. It does feel like um, I think. I could write a lot of this stuff off the first time around as being like, oh, it's finding its feet because the Eminem episode definitely felt a little bit like it didn't know what it wanted to do or wanted to be. It felt like a a fairly half decent interview, but it didn't really have a particular purpose or a particular um, kind of thrust behind it. And I think, yeah, I think that um, the idea that they've reinvented Lightning Notes seems a little bit well not even a little bit too lofty very lofty um for what for what they've they've actually achieved here and yeah i think i think all the episodes don't have a particular focus that they could do um but like you say i think yeah there's, there's this kind of like nice there's this nice mix of people in there and 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 you know if you, if there's a, someone you're particularly interested in then i suppose this show's good but yeah i think I, th- I couldn't yeah i can't i can't disagree with anything because a that's not the point of episode party, but B <laughs> um, no you are wrong and i am right about my recommend no um no, I I think like I think it's it's all it's it's all very fair, and um, I'm I'm glad I brought it back for a second a second review. Yeah, um, um, but yeah, I think I'll um, I won't go back for round three.
0: Let's go to our next podcast, Adam. Let's go for yours. Tell us about your podcast.
3: Okay, so my podcast is the soundtrack show with David W. Collins. Uh, now, the soundtrack show is a show that does deep dives into. Um, Primarily, or at least thus far, blockbuster soundtracks. It'll be interesting to see where it goes in the future. And many of those blockbusters are the blockbusters that um, certainly people of my age grew up with, Um, say, 80s blockbusters, um, and and John Williams has often been the focus. David W. Collins came to make this show, uh, and this is getting deep into my nerdery here, after Hmm. being on a show called um, Star Wars Oxygen, Uh, which he presented with a guy called Jimmy Mack who I think was a radio host and what they would do is they would go through Star Wars soundtracks in granular granular (laughs) detail exploring the themes and motifs that would come through in the music and and how these interacted with the narrative and interface with the narrative and reinforced it and um Star Wars Oxygen was, I think, for, for, a, for, a, for a Star Wars nerd that was missing Star Wars for a few years, That it was perfect. And then we got more Star Wars than we could possibly handle. Maggie, <laughs> maybe it got a little bit less perfect. And, and there was a rift between Jimmy and uh, David W. Collins, who now presents a soundtrack show, uh, which... I think had something to do with how the there was a schism in Star Wars fandom uh, between basically oh, is it prequels
2: and sequels. Uh, oh, no,
3: no, oh gosh, no, no, no. It was no, it was more um, misogynist Pan-shot versus. Um, it, yeah, it was the it was the kind of uh, the right wing um, haters of uh, the Last Jedi versus you know people who have maybe have a slightly more progressive position. That was the, t- <laughs> the impression I got of it. And then so subsequently, David W. Collins started his show, which spread its wings broader. He's a composer. He's uh, um, a voice actor, I think. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
3: uh, He's done a variety of work on computer games. Uh, He's had bit parts in all the most recent Star Wars films and obviously has a lot of connections in that world uh, in a professional capacity. And um, I particularly enjoy this podcast because i don't know a lot about music really um, but by that i mean i don't know a lot about musical theory i don't think a lot about the technicalities and it, or, or even um artistically or thematically about music um mm. but i enjoy thinking about it, and i kind of enjoy my ignorance in a way so if somebody is um going to explore you know films which i enjoy um in a very light way anyway uh, through the lens of music then for me that's that's a little treat because i'm not going to go there in my own mind uh, so i'm happy to be led by the hands and i feel this is a it's a very safe it's a very soft podcast it's a podcast mm-hmm. which um invites everybody in it's almost patronizing condescending <laughs> it, i mean it isn't i mean it isn't that but 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 um but it almost is you know it's 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 so there for layman in in the work it does describing how this music affects us and um you know, the work Work it's trying to do and and i think there's also a sense in which you know the the um the way collins uh, communicates um how these soundtracks are working it's very um it's very old-fashioned in a sense it's um you know it, it's the kind of criticism which is is very out of favor these days uh in the sense that it's um it's like well, it does this, this, and this, and therefore X. You, know, you feel like this, yeah. And uh, and uh, and of course, you know, in, in a world of postmodern crit, that's where an individual point of view is more privileged, um, and where a multiplicity of ideas might be allowed to enter. That that's kind of rarer. But but I actually enjoy its kind of um, its didactic kind of down the line. This is this is what this is, guys. You know, get on board with it. Approach and uh, and yeah, I guess I appreciate it in a nostalgic way. You know, an episode on Back to the Future—that's brilliant. Where I think it falls, it's <laughs> it potentially falls down is when it comes outside of David W. Collins' wheelhouse. He did an episode on Halloween, uh, right. and I'm quite a fan of John Carpenter's soundtracks. Of course, John Carpenter does soundtracks to all of his own films, and. Uh, I felt that like he was missing things that even I you know with, with my with my almost studiously layman's eye you know uh, I'm almost mm-hmm. um that I was picking up on that he wasn't yeah uh, and I, and I thought that's because you don't love this enough and you're not interested enough in it right. um, and so so part of me wishes he'd go off and um, look at uh, David Lynch's work, um, because obviously that's what we do on our podcast <laughs> nice. but, but I, wish he would, I wish he would do you know the Coen brothers in particular because they have a very interesting mix of using um, diegetic sound so that's sound within the film yeah. uh, mm-hmm. with soundtrack uh, and, and the way those two, two things interact with each other is, is very complex I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear what you'd have to say about it but i don't anticipate that he's going to go in those directions i think we're just going to get you know the dark knight the avengers lord of the rings you know I yeah. think it's, I, I think it's that sort of domain and that's fine but i would love to come across a podcast that did some of that work with artier films uh, and um and whilst i enjoy the kind of celebration of uh, blockbusters that he that he is embarking on yeah it would be great to have something else um Uh, and if anyone knows about a podcast like that please do let me know because that would be fantastic but anyway yes what did you guys think because I've gone on a very long time Freddie what do you reckon?
1: Yeah, I think I think the key thing for me here was just yeah, just how like brilliantly accessible it was. As um, well, I struggled with this. We recorded what like, the other night, and I couldn't describe whether I was a musician or not, Jack. Um, well, you, I'm going say the trumpet. I am going to okay, say I'm a musician. <laughs> fine, I'm a, I'm a musician. Um, but that sounds really lofty. And I also have to caveat it with I literally don't know any musical theory at all. I play entirely by ear. I have no idea what I'm doing. But so from that perspective, you can you can kind of call me a layman in this, which is what I'm fine with. And I I I, I learnt a lot very quickly and I didn't feel patronised and I got totally on board with what was going on just on the basis that David is is like completely and utterly like engrossed in it all and he's just so so incredibly excited about everything he's telling you and it it does feel like you know someone who's just connected the dots on this thing and been like right I've got this theory and I've found this thing and I really (laughs) want to share it with you right now and I'm going to tell you all in like one kind of breathless moment and I kind of loved that. I think if I was not in the right mood for it, I'd find it a little bit overbearing and a little bit <laughs> yeah. like kind of annoying. But in the kind of moment I was, I was, I was out on a walk. It was sunny. I was in a field, and it was like, yeah, brilliant. I can get on board with this guy telling me what what's going on here. Even with the subject matter, which was you know about uh, music having a worth of death and doom and gloom, I still actually really really enjoyed it. And um, and it's one of these things where like. I knew that this kind of like little musical phrase had been had been used in lots and lots of soundtracks, and I I could pick out some of the more obvious ones quite easily, and some of the less obvious ones. As soon as he'd pointed it out once, or at least said, "Listen to this bit and see if you hear it," I like, yep, got it straight away. But I didn't know the history behind it, and I didn't know why it came to be and why it came to be used. And as soon as he started going deeper and deeper, and then going to the less obvious versions of it, and the you know the ones where the phrase was kind of split up, or you know it was done in a different key or whatever else... Uh, that was really really cool and i really really enjoyed it and yeah i i i just i got completely on board with it i can see 100 percent what you mean in terms of the types of films and the types of soundtracks he's doing it's definitely really within his wheelhouse and he's not really straying any any way from that and yeah i think you're right there's definitely uh, a space out there for someone to do something that you know dives a bit deeper into some of the less obvious ones because i think you know some of these some of these soundtracks are You know, as as demonstrated with this particular episode, you know some of these soundtracks are really easy pickings in terms of being able to pick out certain bits and being like, "Yep, that's that's what that's trying to say." So yeah, I really enjoyed it though, and I just, I, I mean, I'll never not get on board with with a host who's like. A, knowledgeable, but B, really excited to talk about something, because I think you, you can't go wrong with that as, as a format, I think, you know when you've got one without the other it's, um, you know, you're, you've either got someone who's an overexcited bullshitter or you've got someone who's, you know, knows everything but clearly doesn't, you know, just seems to resent sharing that knowledge, and luckily, um, this isn't that show, and so <laughs> I'm really happy about that, <laughs> so yeah, yeah I, 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 I enjoyed it great
0: yeah I I had a good time with this as well I mean I really like and just to echo I think what you've both said the fact that David W. Collins wants this show to appeal to everyone it sounds like that he's like listen everyone can enjoy digging into this and you don't need to understand music theory it's much like in fact uh, uh, the podcast we spoke about last time Freddie called Strong Songs which breaks down pop songs and talks about why They work, and what makes them appealing to people and and what makes them tick. And it does have a music theory basis, but the host, Kirk Hamilton, is keen to also do explainers on music theory and just make sure that he's like, okay, you know, if we're going to get granular, we're going to have to touch on these concepts, but I don't want you to be left behind. And I feel like David W. Collins is driven by that same dual purpose of like, I want everyone on board, but I also want to pick this apart by like fibre by fibre, which is really fabulous. I particularly enjoyed the first half of this one where he lays out the history of this musical motif. I think it's D.S. E.R.A. Yeah, D.S. yeah. That's it, yeah. So which has these origins in plain chant, and then goes through the romantic classical period where it starts to emerge again uh, and then through into a film like The Shining and it's just this four-note motif which has these threads going all the way through which I thought was really interesting and I think the podcast for me peaked at The Shining, when they demonstrate it in The Shining and you've built to this point where you've walked this path through history, you understand that everyone's playing into this lineage of death, which feels so wonderful in the context of The Shining for so many reasons and reasons that David W. Collins lays out with muchos enthusiasm, which I thought was great. I think um i and i I love the bit he points out the fact that a lot of film scores pull on romantic classical music rather than the classical music of the time as well which was Mm, discordant and, and serialism and blah and wasn't really the providing the escapisms that audiences needed in the context of the cinema like all of that stuff came in and i was Loving it, loving it, loving it. The second half, he... So I get the impression he's not someone who has an incredible grasp on music theory. I felt that there was a lot of overreaching in where he was... uh, saying that this DS motif was appearing. Like when he got to the Star Wars theme and he sort of eagerly over the top of the theme screaming, DS Like over the bit where he hears it <laughs> to just sort of really make you believe it. I was like, I, I didn't feel it. Like I, so I, I, I have a reasonably good grasp of music theory um and i felt like that i mean the tonality was completely different in that example and there was a few after that point where i was like do you know what it's such a short little motif that this has more to do with following in the lineage of romantic classical music and using a lot of those harmonies and those ideas rather than this ds era thing and i think as soon as i felt that and as soon as he was bringing up more examples which kind of aligned with that uh, sensation that I had. I think that the, the less interested I, I became in the examples, and there was points as well where he does an example and then he goes, "I'm not making this up," and I was like, <laughs> "I don't know, mate," because I feel like that there is a little bit of that. But I should also say that there is so much to be said when dealing with stuff like film soundtracks and music and writing about music and talking about music to reach right to the edge of plausibility and maybe also dangle your limbs off the edge a bit and stretch for those theories which are probably a little bit out of your reach because I think that's really where the excitement kicks in that's where things do get really interesting there's that sort of liminal place where maybe actually uh, there was something subconscious going on which caused them but maybe there wasn't I also listened to one on super mario brothers which uh, Which was brilliant uh, yeah which was freaking amazing and (laughs) and the breakdown he did on the individual like constituent parts of the melody and playing it through on the piano was fabulous again uh, there's a couple of music theory bits where i'm like he talks about minor chords where they're not minor chords and it kind of just um makes me twitch a little bit because i'm like ah damn it Like, other than that it would have been great but uh, you know if he had the terms down and everything and and kind of just stay within the technical terrain that he was comfortable in it would be great you know i I just basically didn't want the mistakes but i i i mean i really like him as a host i really like the premise of the show I, i totally agree with the remarks that there are many interesting places to go with this and i think it would make the show better to really demonstrate the entire breadth of like what's possible within soundtracking um i should i should say as well i don't know if you've heard the show soundtracking with edith bowman but um no. she does interviews with um yes. composers and directors about their soundtracks and there's like wonderful ones with um uh the director of moonlight whose name escapes me at the moment there's another yeah. one with um oh, the person who did ghost story talking about the music but yeah just brilliant so that one would be worth checking out if you want another show that goes granular on soundtracks but um yeah so ultimately enjoyed it um Bob, what do you reckon?
2: Yeah, I mean same kind of guys to be honest. I felt the guy's hmm. uh, enthusiasm was really infectious. My uh knowledge of the things that he's talking about is is totally just nowhere. Uh so <laughs> I was very happy to be sort of led by the hand through this uh you know grounding in theory that that seemed pretty plausible to me. It's incredibly interesting that he has this background as a like a Star Wars guy which I didn't know about because that does really explain where all of his subject matter so far seems to have landed. he does. He's really into that Spielbergian kind of momenty blockbuster soundtrack thing. Um, And I felt like Adam did the... uh, Same as Adam, the only other one that I went on to listen to was the John Carpenter one, because, you know, John Carpenter. uh, And, yeah, again, I was a bit like, there's a kind of a... There's like a theorylessness in Carpenter's soundtrack work. There's this kind of like idiot savant deliberate stupidity to it Mm. uh which is really effective and he didn't seem to have much of a feel for that because it kind of he wanted yeah he's much more comfortable talking about these big kind of you know orchestral sweeping moments or whatever but um but yeah i i I felt i felt that, that that his tone is really nice i thought that it was like being a little bit patronized by um like a gifted primary school teacher or something and and, and i was like i right, do you know what you know a lot more about me than this i'm happy to come along on the journey with you while you explain these things um i felt that he you know he's not over rehearsed he wasn't too kind of uh you know his enthusiasm did seem genuine a lot of the time and, yeah and and at the end of it you know i was quite happy to be boiled along. Um, and, and yeah and and yeah I, I, my i thought he was straining credulity my credulity a couple of times during the DS One, especially when it got to the Star Wars thing. <laughs> and uh and I'm like, oh okay, so you just you'll find an excuse to talk about Star Wars yeah. <laughs> in every episode. Okay, okay, Uh, But yeah, but I I did go on and listen to another one. I was even listening to his one um, about uh, Wagner shortly before now, because I thought I could do with a bit of a refresher to kind of see what I thought about it. And uh, and again, I was, you know, for, for 20 minutes, he was telling me stuff I had no clue about. And he did it in a way which was good enough to make me sit up and listen. So, yeah. Yeah. Fair play to the guy.
0: Great. Well, that one seems to have got good reviews. So let's go on to our third podcast. Bob, it's yours. So tell us a bit about it. This monolith. Oh,
2: yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, so mine is Chart Music, uh, which is a podcast where a presenter called Al Needham and uh, three, well, no, two other guys from a revolving pool of ex-melody maker journalists sit down for some time and talk very, very deeply about a randomly chosen episode of the old British pop show, Top of the Pops, and... Uh, and 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 yeah when i when you guys kind of asked me and had to get involved and uh to recommend this uh, a podcast i knew that i would have to pick chart music but i was really worried about doing it because well for like three reasons one was that this podcast goes on for like four hours sometimes and it was it was a bit of a piss take to expect you guys to sit and listen to it for that long this one went on four hours before. yeah i know man yeah <laughs> the second reason i can't quite remember uh what that reason was um because it's so niche it's about a very it's about an obscure bunch of people talking in an obscure way about something which although wasn't obscure at the time kind of has become obscure as as time has left it behind and uh thirdly the third reason why, why i didn't necessarily think it was a good idea to recommend it to anybody other than me was that like i love it so much I like, it hits my buttons so perfectly, <laughs> and I think it's so brilliant that um, I was going to struggle to uh, express why and how, uh, like I'm doing now. Um, <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's just amazing. Um, so you've got, yeah, it goes on for four hours, right? They, they start with this, so Top of the Pops ran for 35 years. There was Maybe 3, explain 000- what
3: Top of the Pops is to American listeners.
2: Top of the Pops was a show which ran for about thirty-five years on UK TV on a Thursday night for half an hour. The a bunch of guys from from BBC Radio would go onto radio would go onto BBC One TV and do performances of the whatever was in the charts that week. Uh, they would they would always play the number one, they would always play the highest new entry into the charts, they would always play the uh, song which had gone up the most in the charts in that during that week and then they'd like throw in a few more and it would go on for you know 26 minutes or something and it would and then it would just stop and that was that was like the pop cultural conversation that the entire uk had throughout that 35 year period basically it all condensed down to this somewhat magical half an hour on a thursday or maybe a friday night where suddenly drab england in from you know from the mid sixties up till the up to like two thousand and six I think it finished would show you its possibilities would 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 give you these beautiful three minute slabs of pop music that would um you know that would that could uh, that could transform your life right like so many people 's people a bit older than me people my age so many people 's memories of top of the pops are of this thing in the corner of the room suddenly throwing an incandescent moment of something brilliantly unimaginable at you like you know t-rex or the human league just moments where the entire universe seemed to coalesce into your tv and come (laughs) into your living room and uh these guys who do the podcast get it uh, you know, it meant a hell of a lot to me when I was growing up. Loads of people have there, had like family based rituals or private rituals about, you know, sitting down at a young age and so many early formative memories of doing it. But the show isn't like nostalgic. It kind of has this very critical and in-depth look at the past. It's nostalgic insofar as it deals with old stuff which gives you like cozy feels, but they ruthlessly and you know, sometimes unfairly like interrogate even their own responses to these um to these little to these little fragments of like of like uh pop joy which are all kind of bundled with these terrible Thanks. like seventies d j guys yeah the, yeah these like assholes. Like, and oh <laughs> god because there's like so like the whole other thing is like uh this there's this point of trauma right uh the presenters of top of the pops were some of the most famous men in the country. Uh, and then in 2012, the UK was kind of, through a series of like news reports, we all realised that these guys were, uh, not, not universally, but a high proportion of them were sex offenders or, or much worse. You know, very, very dodgy men. And now if you look back on the way that they presented these, you know, they would do like a cheesy link between the different acts playing their single for that week. The kind of the amateurishness of them and the horror of them is suddenly there, right. and I think I think that having that uh, as part of chart music's kind of unwritten remit to to go back and uncover the monstrosity that these horrible men when well, they weren't all horrible, but mostly uh, the ones that stand out were—is uh, is really kind of useful work, actually, for somebody who's uh, who's still quite shocked at the fact that the most famous men on my TV when I was young all turned out to be massive uh... I don't feel that we've really had a conversation about it, but chart Music always does have that conversation. The other thing, sorry guys, I'm getting too excited like I knew I It's fine,
1: that's what it's all about. Please keep going. <laughs> it's,
2: <laughs> it's a being, great um, podcast, Paul. Good, I'm glad you liked it. Okay, well, we'll, we'll see what the other guys thought in a minute. I knew you'd like it, because uh, we've been bending your ear about it for ages. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, the other thing is that, um, do, you guys know, do you guys know The Melody Maker? Is that kind of something that was in your well, cultural sort of...
0: Too young, probably. Like, I, I know yeah. of Melody Maker simply from writing about music and speaking to people about it and researching music and music journalism, but I was never old enough to first-hand read it.
2: Right. Okay. So the the music press, as it was then, there were basically like two poles of it. There was The Enemy, which was like the big one, and mm-hmm. the one that kind of got the access to the stars and, and kind of kept the, the, the larger frame of what the music industry and and the kind of the, the the spin-off cultures around it could be about uh and then as like the as like the beta of the news press there was melody maker mm-hmm. and because it was because it flew under the radar because it had slightly lower budgets because it didn't get quite the same access they had to rely on their writers a lot more to just be great yeah and uh and they re- and they were you know historically yeah. simon reynolds um david you stubbs know, yeah. yeah. Precisely. So yeah. So the so the the revolving cast of co presenters on chart music is Taylor Parks, Simon Price, Neil Kulkani, Sarah B, and David Stubbs, all of who are um, veteran melody maker journalists who kind of all left under you know the history of the melody maker is, is a 50 year story in itself um but they all wrote for it around the early mid-90s sarah b mm-hmm. is like the youngest by by a big white, well, a reasonable chunk and so she was writing for it at like the turn of the century um and they've all got a kind of a old older wiser Tie like more cynical perspective <laughs> on it, uh, and they're not, you know, like the the enemy journalists of today uh, of of yesterday. Sorry, kind of all went on to have good jobs in the media, and now they, you know, now they mm. kind of have jobs with the Guardian where they go and interview UK voters and shake their heads or whatever. Um, <laughs> now. Now, uh, but the Melody Maker guys were kind of left behind by history because they were just these intensely idiosyncratic and kind of passionate writers who, once they kind of stopped being uh, the right age to kind of talk breathlessly about whatever kind of music happened to be out that week, they, you know, history kind of left them behind a little bit. And there's, uh, and they're, you know, they're self aware and, and, and sensible enough to be, to know that and to use it as part of like the, the, armory of what the show has to use to talk about these things these 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 shows that it talks about uh and they just come across as legends i used to read them they they shaped the way that i thought about music when i was growing up these 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 names um and uh to hear them again as older and more cynical uh but you know and very funny they've got a kind of you know they're a bit 90s in the way that they talk because that was kind of when they were young and right. you don't hear that voice in the media very often they've got regional accents which you never hear in the media these days uh, they, yeah, there's this wonderful kind of like, that like so the Team Supreme is Al Needham who's from Nottingham, Neil Kulkani who's from Coventry and Taylor Parks who's from like the Midlands somewhere, I think like Leamington hmm. or something like that uh, and there's this wonderful perspective of Midlandsism that doesn't fit into the english story the english story is north and south and and, and those are the two poles and these guys are like what <laughs> and uh and they you know the midlands kind of musically it gave us uh you know two tone which mm-hmm. um which was like the kind of the 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 first authentic kind of multicultural uh, english music movement they gave uh, the midlands gave the world metal which is which is england's yeah. biggest Biggest musical export, there's no denying, there's no doubting that metal's the most popular musical genre in the world, probably, Uh, and that all just came out of a few grotty towns in the Midlands, and uh, the fact that they are unexcluding their own voice by sitting down and having a podcast and spending four hours talking (laughs) about a half-hour TV show from 30 or 40 years ago, where Hmm. there's just, there's just crap landfill pop music and they go so deep into what it was about and what it meant and how good it is or how bad it is and how silly it is and how serious it is and all of the angles of meaning that it can have exhaustively you know four hours um uh i just i just think it's wonderful i just think it's exactly what a podcast should be insofar as it's niche totally unapologetic and forces the listener to learn how to listen to it because because why the hell not? Because 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 media is open and decentralised now in a way which contrasts radically to their own subject matter, which was hmm. this broadcasted, super popular mass media thing, tightly regulated and like really squeezed down to that half hour. They, it really feels like they're able to breathe around that restriction with the with the really very simple tools that are available to them and to everybody who does podcasts. They seem to. Um, run at it with a gusto and kind of obsession which i which i really really admire and uh yeah i love it i just love it love it love it love it love (laughs) it my wife loves it and we we it's the height it's the highlight of our month when a new episode comes out (laughs) 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 what did you guys think of it
3: uh adam what do you reckon i think it's fantastic of all the podcasts that we listen to and i'm including my own here i think this one is is something that i would unreservedly recommend to people um for a whole variety of reasons and i will be listening to uh, all of it i think from now on um first of all it's social history the guys who present the show these melody maker journalists i'm not sure i'll need them he is a melody maker, ex-melody no, maker journalist. No, no, uh, he Apparently was he was ex-editor of Left Lion, because I, I kind of did a bit of research.
2: Um, he basically worked on, like, grotty wank mags in the 90s. <laughs> he used to, like, <laughs> right, he's got loads nice. of anecdotes about it. Yeah, yeah, like, he's a journalist okay. and a writer, but yeah. Yeah, sorry.
3: yeah, I mean, he's, he's well known for, for um, this uh, acclaimed listings magazine for Nottingham, Left Lion yeah um, but uh, but but yes i think i think there is a bit of uh, social history here the, the 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 commentary that the guy these guys give um on the music necessarily involves their own experience uh, and involves talking about the uk at the time uh, and it brings it to life in a way that i think people are seldom exposed to because history um as it's presented to us is um so often uh there for us to enjoy as part of our conception of the the modern world uh mm. and it's there to reinforce or or to stand against our our current values but but when they just talk about the lived experience of the early 80s uh, and of course you know I'm, I'm i'm 43 i'm old enough to remember a bit of the early 80s you know i was you know 15 in 1990 what what they're saying rings true uh and uh, and it, it, it makes history, history again, I think, this show. It, um, yeah. <laughs> it, it it presents it in such a way that you feel like um, it was different to now, that it's not just about, history isn't just there as an adjunct to now or an adjunct to my own personal identity. Uh, I particularly enjoyed, I think it was Neil Kulkarni, talking about the um, ever-present threat of violence if he went into the town centre as an Asian... Uh, 12 year old or 11 Mm. year old in like 1981 right um Mm. you know uh because one of the things that people are probably unaware of is that the levels of um street violence were at their highest in the uk in the 70s and that would particularly have been the case if you're an asian young man uh, so, so you might have had to avoid it, and and so it brings these sorts of things to life, and it's all done through the lens of this highly popular form. And as Bob says, you know, there was uh, Top of the Pops was uh, monolithic. It was. Um it was something that everybody congregated around uh, and I, again I'm old enough to remember that uh, and, and it set the cultural conversation I'm also old enough to remember when Top of the Pop stopped doing that and what's I think where, where Bob and I have an interesting divergence is that in the 90s he would have been much more interested in reading music journalism than I was I was um, you know I was into electronic music uh, and and I my perspective of the music press in the 90s was that they were propping up and valorizing Musical forms which really were had had their day or, or were dying and were irrelevant. Um, and of course, you know, that I, I look back on that and I see that that was a ridiculous view. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I, but, but the thing about dance music is, and electronic music in the '90s was that it was. Um, that it was music that stood outside of those sorts of frameworks, and in fact, in some ways it was more familiar with the kind of it at- more had more in common with the kind of atomized um nature of culture today in that um you had to kind of st- you had to find out about it, it was narrower it wasn 't given to you by someone above there was yes. no top of the pops you know so so i think i i I kind of had a disdain for 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 you know, Top of the Pops and the, the legacy of Top of the Pops when I was a youngster. Um, but but this show ha- enables me to kind of see how, you know, the, these moments of kind of cultural congregation were were so important um, uh, and how that they um, set an agenda for, for everyone. And this show does manage to capture that somewhat. Um, the other thing about it was that it, it also spoke to my own... Um, experience in a, in a rather radically different way when they end uh, when they ended up saying uh, okay so the number one uh, every week in this show they they uh look at a i given knew you were going to talk about it i know what are going to say but of course i have to talk about <laughs> it don't i <you>, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah yeah i do have to talk about it
2: um <laughs> it, it, when i realized what it was i was like ah oh, damn it i shouldn't have chosen that one to give it and we're just going to talk about that Go on, sorry, don't <laughs> <laughs> but i have to talk about it
3: Right? I do have <laughs> yeah, to talk okay. about it. Um, so so they, they talk about a particular episode of Top of the Pops, uh, and this was in 1981. Adman with Stand Liver was number one in the charts. So, of course, part of the reason why this show means a lot to me is definitely, and, and it, I feel like it means a lot to me straight away, right? I already have gone to that place. Uh, Is actually to my own personal history, uh, and because the eighties music scene um, resonates with me, because my mum was a uh, TV producer and they also made pop videos, and they made Adamant Stand and Deliver video. Uh, and at the end of this podcast, they talk at great length about Adamant's song "Stand and Deliver" and the video. Wow! Uh, and, uh, and and so much of what they were talking about about the how this video was outrageous in so many ways, uh, <laughs> the kinds of images and ideas that it presented you with were were so left field and so outside of your experience at that point in history. Um, and of course, this was made by people that I knew. Uh, were you and- there? Did you go to the set? Oh no, I didn't know, but I, I think I think there was uh, you know I heard various things about it. I think there was a stunt man who punched a lung, and uh, oh God. or maybe that was on Prince Charming. Cool. I can't remember, but um, but but uh, but anyway, so uh, yeah, just just that. Uh, so I had that personal collection, connection to it too, and I also enjoyed the way they hated Toya. Their their bile at Toya oh was God. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it becomes yeah. quite
2: uncomfortable almost. There, it did. It? Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely.
3: I, I spoke to my wife about it afterwards. I was like it kind of felt like it was straying to misogynistic territory there. Like right. how much they didn't like Toya. But at the same time, and, and, and they kept trying to, so Toya was a big pop music act in the early 80s, for anybody listening who doesn't know. Uh, and she was kind of, and people often accuse her of being kind of faux punk there at the end of kind of British punk's death uh to to kind of um you know uh try and revivify its corpse for her own um betterment her own wallet uh, uh, and uh, they they spent a lot of time ripping into toya in this episode uh and yeah it did it did feel like that they kept trying to bring it back to the idea that toya wasn't actually a terrible person not only was she making terrible music but she was a terrible person and they needed to emphasize that. Because I think they're woke enough guys to know that, you know, a couple of three male music journalists ripping into a female pop star is not a great look, you know.
0: Right. Mm. Uh
3: and, and I and I did feel that when I when I was listening to this. But but in a way, even even their kind of dirty unwokeness was part I say dirty unwokeness, I i recognize as I say I recognise that they they were self conscious about it. But even that kind of even that wrongness, in a way, endeared me to this podcast. It, it, it felt like something which was not of another era, but definitely channeling something of another era. And um, yeah, I loved it, and we should all listen to it.
1: There we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a really interesting one for me because, um, so I'll, I'll do the contexty bit first, which is probably less exciting. But um, so I don't think in. Um, when was this, this particular episode was about um, Top of the Pops in 1981, wasn't it? The particular episode. Mm. I don't think my parents had met then. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. So it was some, it was some time ago. Um, but I do have a real affinity for Top of the Pops growing up. I feel like I missed its kind of heyday and it was probably, yeah. you know, on its way out by the time I was old enough to really get into it. But I do remember very vividly. Going into my room and watching Top of the Pops because my dad was watching TV downstairs and he did not care for pop music. And I, I, I remember that being quite an important part of my life. And I think to, to move the story of my life on a little bit, um, when I went to uni, J- Jack and I studied at the same uni. We did journalism. I'd say the course that we were on, especially for, on the male side of things, there was an even split between people who wanted to be sports journalists and people who wanted to be music journalists. And I think, I don't know about you, Jack, but I definitely sat on the side of someone who thought they might make their career as a music journalist oh yeah um, yeah, and, and I, I was lucky enough to do um, one of my first work experience shifts was at The Fly, when The Fly was still around, the music magazine The Fly. So I got mm-hmm. this like little taste of what it was like to work on a music print publication. And all of this is leaning into the fact that a lot of the things you've just both discussed um, came up for me when I was listening to this. One, I think it's just ridiculously commendable that they were able to uh, describe the things they were talking about in this episode at Top of the Pops in, like such um excruciating is the wrong word because that's painful it's not painful it's it's just ridiculously detailed Exquisite, exquisite <laughs> detail yeah. thank you um good i'm tape. still right writer, believe it or not and that's um that's that's not good um but it was in such exquisite detail that i kind of understood it as someone who wasn't born in 1981 i, I got i got what was going on and and i i definitely got that sense of like okay a this is what you know this is what the state of pop was in 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 this time and b um this is what the state of music journalism was in this time and both of those things came through i also found it really interesting that um a lot of the time they talk about 1981 in the present tense um Mm -hmm. which i think really plays into that bringing the whole show back to life and and looking back on like a bygone era but in a way that feels very much like it's still happening right now yeah Um, and the running
2: time really helps with that right because because (laughs) you're you're into it and and it takes almost two hours or three hours or four hours to uh to, to to kind of catch up with it, right? Yeah. It to kind of really bed into you, yeah.
1: And, and and they're building this like I, I I don't want to put it on a pedestal or like pretend that they're doing something clever that they might not be, but they're almost building this world. And with that runtime, you've got time to like really get into this detail. Also, as as someone who was who was born and grew up in the Midlands, I really appreciated that and got that straight away as well. That these were people Good. who understood that part of the world and what it meant to be a child and what it meant to grow up there. And again, like I you know I grew up in the nineties, so I, I missed a quite a lot of some of the experiences they were talking about but I do get it and I do know what it's like to come from a shitty town with a few half decent <laughs> sort of not at all decent musical exports um, but what you know led into something much bigger for the for the country so in that sense I really really loved it and I can see how it must appeal to quite a few people I think one of the things I noted very much at the beginning is when they're talking and thanking uh, their Patreon backers and so I'm kind of doing the math thinking, okay, right, they have a number of people who are making a financial commitment as fans here and they're putting out a podcast that's running over four hours at a time so they must be doing something right because to do that and still have people who are <laughs> such ardent fans that they want to give you their money is, is is a really nice place to be and it obviously speaks to how good the show is. So in that sense I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you picked up on the um, the, the the kind of them laying into Toya um, and I, I did feel a bit, I was like this this does feel a little bit misogynistic but again once you hear them talking through her backstory and explaining themselves you you do kind of get it it did make me slightly uncomfortable at first and i i still don't know how i feel about it but i did also understand that criticism by the end which i think was um was really helpful so yeah i enjoyed it um Do I, uh, with all the ridiculous listening commitments that come with this show, that I'm not always (laughs) able to keep up with? um, Is it even uh, would I would I would I devote four hours of my time regularly to it? I don't know, but I only once a month.
0: I don't know know what the problem problem is.
1: Oh well, yeah. You know, if that it was changed... Weekly, it would only be normal
2: running. Time. <laughs> uh, normal
1: running time, yeah. <laughs> this is true, um, but no. Um, I, I, but for for what I was kind of like slightly dreading based on the runtime alone, I, I did, I did, I did really, um, I did really enjoy it. Yeah,
0: um, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I should say I was excited by the duration before I'd even hit play. My phone was less excited and wouldn't let me play it until I cleared it of everything else that's on it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I get that.
0: (laughs) Um, I am really, really interested in stuff that is of long duration. I think you said, Bob, that it's something that a podcast should be. I think this is why the medium is so unique in that you can have these experiences where you can be two and a half hours into something. You can't quite remember pressing play on it originally and you're not really sure when it's going to wrap up either. That, for me, is an exciting, giddying experience. Um, Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's the best thing. Uh, There's a lot of my favourite music experiences that play on that as well. And I think three people who work within music, I think, also are going to be cognizant of that as a device as well to draw people in and have a very unique type of experience. I am, uh, I was born in the same year as Freddie, so Top of the Pops again was kind of probably waning uh, as I was starting to become aware of it and certainly wasn't the institution that I I believe it probably was for for you two I understand its history as uh, an important thing and I think what this podcast really does is illustrate how it is this almost cultural congregation point where they have the opportunity to talk about fashion, celebrities music and a lot of things that were all coalescing at this particular time I think as well I write about music as well Uh, it's the other thing that I do I write about experimental music and a lot of that kind of writing is very much in the vein of if you don't comprehend something or there's something that sort of feels misaligned when you're listening to it that's on you as a listener, and there's an opportunity to to learn and grow and have a different experience uh, listening to something you don't quite comprehend. I think it's such a different case, maybe in the 90s or the 80s, critiquing pop music, whereas it's almost completely reversed. Like, if the music isn't hitting home, there's a deficiency in the music. And I think that's the kind of music journalism which is coming into force here, which I find really fascinating to hear. I mean, I have done an interview with Simon Reynolds before, and also David Stubbs as well when I was doing research um, cool. on post-rock. Oh,
3: fantastic.
0: Yeah, so uh, they are really, really fascinating guys. I think also as well, getting deep into their stuff during that period made me realise that just there is, I mean, as you've said at length, a very particular style of journalism whereby, I mean, they feel so declarative in the way that they're coming forward like they have such like a prosaic critique i think what you notice perhaps more so in the music criticism that i'm more familiar with is that all that prosaic poetry is reserved for a celebration of the music whereas they get they spin some wonderful metaphors out of tearing people down i oh yeah i wrote
2: down <laughs> see that's why i couldn't forgive the toya thing is because there's it's almost an art itself, this kind. it, of right. it was incredible.
3: I, I tried. To, I tried to describe it to my wife, um, and I just failed because the poetry was implicit in the in, in you know in the words that they used. Right.
0: Yeah. I and mean, I, I wrote down the captain pugwash of high speed vibrato, um, which I really enjoyed as a phrase. I think Taylor Parks, <laughs> in particular, has this way. I think he refers to something. Shaken Stevens as basically being like the, the 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 core by which all the cosmological clocks are set. which is like, and he ends up at that point, you're like, how did we get here? But like, again, just such a, and it's such a composure to the way that he goes about doing what he does. I found the Toya thing really uncomfortable, actually. I, do you know what? I I got near the end of it and I wasn't really on board with it. I I feel like, uh, I I, I appreciate there's so much self-awareness, I think, in, in entering into this situation whereby there i mean obviously there's a distance of time between themselves and what they're taking these shots at as well which i think they're incredibly aware of like it's almost like there's no one to aim at because they've long gone you know Toya isn't Mm -hmm. really going to respond to this podcast because you know she's not going (laughs) to listen for 90 minutes to get to it but you (laughs) know i i also did feel as like is this um sort of enabling of an ability to speak in a particular way about someone, which I, I wasn't 100% on board with. But I think as a an entity, this podcast is uh, pretty phenomenal. I've, I'm so fascinated by it. To see a f- you know, five-hour podcast on one episode of The Top of the Pops, I think it's like a conceptual art project more than it is a podcast in a way. But to know that also as well, it's got a lot of teeth as a podcast is really interesting because i don't have the connection with top of the pops i probably won't listen to this too much more but enjoyed the experience while i was uh while i was going through it so yeah top
2: no i'm so pleased that i didn't utterly like murder all of you by making you sit through it i wasn't looking
3: forward to it i've got to tell you
0: no no.
3: (laughs) no i have an hour and a half
0: commute and knowing that two of those three of those were going to be entirely consumed <laughs> i'm <laughs> sorry <a> yeah. totp <laughs> retrospective was uh, dizzying <laughs> but um no it was uh, <laughs> it didn't turn out as bad as i thought We've got one more podcast uh, and it's mine. So this one is The Trap Set with Joe Wong. So it's a podcast by drummer and composer Joe Wong who interviews drummers about their lives. So he talks to them about their upbringing, how they discovered the drums, their interests outside of music. Uh, And he's done episodes with, I think he's done over 200 at this point uh, with people like Phil Collins, uh, Bill Bruford, who's a a big prog drummer. Uh, He's also done some with some of my own favourite from sort of the experimental side of rock and, and and the like. So Larry Howeg from Pelican, Adrian Davis from Earth and Greg Fox as well. So there's a real range of, of people he's done interviews with. I think it's quite rare in music journalism for the drummer to be given a dedicated spotlight because there's definitely less of a pull to find out their stories. You know, they're not seen as the enigmas who are pulling the songs down. They're just hitting stuff at the back. But I like that this podcast actually gives them the centre stage. Uh, I, I picked uh, an episode with Milford Graves, um, who's a drummer and, and a big figure in free jazz, particularly in like the, the 60s, but still going and still doing stuff. I, I think he's a really fascinating presence in music and conversation, and there's like a, a really good documentary about him called Full, Man- Full Mantis uh, on Amazon Prime, which uh, whet my appetite for hearing more Milford. I think Joe, as an interviewer, is quite interesting. And this is quite early on, but I think it does demonstrate some of the things that he still does. Perhaps to a lesser extent, I think he has improved. But he struggles to get going in this interview. And there's a a, a kind of disjointed feel to the questions that he's throwing at Milford. And they sometimes feel like they've got a bit of presumption in them, sometimes they're quite closed the questions and and I feel the kind of friction between interviewer and interviewee to begin with I think what carries it through is the fact that Milford then just you know opens up and lets loose and can I think at a certain point basically fathoms questions in his head that he goes on to answer without Joe needing to say much at all so I, I I just thought it was fascinating I mean Milford talks about he's very interested in the martial arts Uh, he's also interested in biology he's a qualified laboratory technician and he kind of has this thing that I think runs through what he talks about where he's very interested in the kind of fundamental essence of a lot of stuff and taking that and then sort of inhabiting it and finding out what he can do with it there's a great anecdote in the documentary where he talks about doing martial arts and there was one teacher who wouldn't teaching the praying mantis move so instead he just bought a praying mantis and watched it for a bit instead and learnt directly from the insect itself which is really lovely yeah (laughs) um the only animal yeah from the animal yeah yeah (laughs) yeah he just went right to the source But um, the the snag for this podcast for me is that uh, I love hearing drummers talk about drumming. And in fact, it's a podcast about drummers' lives rather than drummers' drums. I would love for more talk about how they go about what they do on the kit. They kind of talk about how they got into it. Not so much about like so adrian davis is like my favorite drummer ever i wanted to hear more about how she constructs her beats and stuff like that it's not always the most expressible stuff and perhaps that's why joe hasn't taken the tact of asking those questions because you know it's just music man but i i I really enjoy the podcast ultimately so um bob what do you reckon of this one uh
2: i'm really glad that you said that you listened to the adrian davis one because that was the other one that i listened to as well yeah um, because for exactly the same reasons, and, and, and it kind of, and, it, and it, it, it made me think, yeah, there's a, there is a bit of a lack about actual technique in this program because um, I've seen her live, and the way she oh. cycles through these enormously spaced out beats oh, on those so um, Earth tracks, good. It, it, it's it's like nothing I've ever seen before. It's like it's like you're watching somebody in this weird sort of Tai Chi chant yes. or something like that. Yeah, um, and I really wanted to hear her speak about what that's a, what that's like. Yes, because because I, I enjoyed the Milford Graves one, and I was like. Oh, yeah this is pretty good and and there is a really good concept about you know like the cliche of a drummer is that there's nothing there to speak to right is that they're just there's no articulacy they just bang things yes uh and to, and the fact that he's kind of almost picked that up as the USP for his podcast and and goes beyond that uh is really really interesting but um yeah i wanted to hear adrian davis talk about her about what it's like to be able to bang a drum like that yes and 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 yeah i'm sure that's kind of almost impossible to speak to uh to speak about but like that's that's like the challenge right that's why the podcast deserves to exist uh and i felt like it kind of struggled with that a little bit um and so you're kind of left with just like the the, the charisma of the interviewee which uh in milford graves's case certainly isn't lacking at all <laughs> adrian davis likewise uh was 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 great too yeah. but yeah didn't quite yeah you know and and I, I, so i followed i followed down a little bit of uh, milford graves's stuff i'd never heard him before and um i really don't have an ear for that kind of free jazz stuff it doesn't really make much sense to me um and it would have been really nice to have a guy who seems to know a hell of a lot about it and a hell of a lot of other stuff and has got a good way of talking about the way that he approaches thinking and approaches it in this kind of bodily way which is kind of the thing that you think that drumming is about right like the rhythm is in is in the fingers and and it it doesn't lend itself to articulation terribly well um to, to, to have somebody kind of make the effort to go into that a bit more would have been ace because, because I still don't have much of a frame for listening to Milford Graves yes uh, when I'd like to have one.
0: Yes, absolutely. There's almost a presumption that you are going and going, oh, I like Milford Graves and then you uh, colour in the edges with this podcast.
2: Yeah, I mean and, and I didn't I I, I felt that uh, Joe Wong is, is quite a, is you know he's a certainly charming avuncular presence. He does seem to like them as people and he seems to be able to get them to open up very easily. Yeah. Uh and presumably he is a drummer himself and, and uh and yeah, almost I guess maybe to him. A lot of this stuff can be taken for granted anyway whereas it'd be better for him to kind of maybe frame it for the listener for the casual listener for the non-drumming listener a bit more uh but 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 yeah uh, you know the the ones i listen to though the the subjects are really really good talkers and uh yeah and i and i i definitely won't rule out going back to this podcast again nice
0: cool adam what do you reckon
2: yeah i mean you guys have covered a lot of what i was
3: thinking because in some ways this is like the ultimate muso podcast right it's it's you know a podcast about drummers <laughs> uh, and as bob said they are the invisible uh section of uh, of music they are the you know the people who 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 th- we make the jokes about because apparently their role is so unimportant now i don't feel that way about drummers at all but 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 that does seem how they're perceived to be culturally and and so in a way it's kind of conceptually like what's the hook of this podcast right so we're supposed to be listening to a show about uh, this this kind of invisible species in music and surely <laughs> that's only on the whole interesting to people who are al- a, already interested in the bands uh mentioned or or the or the artists themselves you know so so the audience are already predisposed to it but it seems to me that this this podcast is maybe a bit more popular than that. And um, and in some ways, I think that's probably down to the fact that Joe Wong has this um, very respectful way of approaching um, his interviews. He's very much not Malcolm Gladwell or Rick Rubin. Right. He's a guy who allows the artist to speak. And that's you know there's a lot to be said for that and I really enjoyed that in the Milford Graves one I hadn't come across Milford Graves previously I think I was much more ready to enjoy what he does than Bob does maybe because I don't know I like the beats more or something but uh (laughs) but I I went you know I I I found his music is sort of more attractive uh quickly but 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 um You know, I was asking myself, would I listen to this if it hadn't been recommended to me? And I think there would be a degree of intrigue about this kind of invisible cohort, the drummer. Um, And I think that might interest me enough to kind of dip into the odd episode. I don't see myself subscribing to it but looking down the list of people that have been interviewed you know there were a few that I wanted to dip into and I did listen to the episode with the drummer from Love Michael Stewart which uh, was full of fascinating anecdotes about the LA rock scene and in fact that that man's personal um trials with heroin but it became in some ways it became sadly uh, listen to that episode and listen to the milford graves episode it became sadly maybe a little bit too like what malcolm gladwell is going for right um because it becomes all about these personal stories it becomes about these you know the stories of these drummers whereas actually i want to know a little bit about the music yes. uh, I wanted to get a little bit more of what I'm getting from the soundtrack show I want to try and understand what's happening here I want to uh understand their philosophy I want to understand the um the ideas I want to understand what the music is trying to do or what they're or what they're trying to achieve with it uh and unfortunately I didn't feel like um in either of the episodes that I listened to and and I'm prepared to accept that you know I've listened to two episodes out of 200 you know there's plenty of room for, for, for my experience not to be representative but I, I did want more of the technicalities I did want a little bit more of the music being opened up and less of their lives being opened up and I think where their lives are being opened up can be interesting you know that's very hit or miss right that's that depends on who you're interviewing and if you're interviewing Milford Graves that's going to be fine because he's a fascinating man um, and if you're interviewing the drummer from love yeah that's probably going to be fine because that was a fascinating era and who doesn't want to know more about rock music in the 60s you know um but you're not always going to have that experience um and i feel if this podcast was to be more accessible to people um and actually to do in some ways to do its job better it would be more interested in the music itself yes uh and and i kind of wanted that you know There is this kind of built-in problem here, too, where this show is inevitably going to be introducing these invisible drummers to people, okay? Because, of course, no matter how enthusiastic you are about music, you're not going to know who half the bloody drummers in the world are. And, of course, the podcast format... You can't, uh, licensing laws being what they are, you can't play extended pieces of music. So you can only get snippets, only get a sense. And certainly with the Milford Grave stuff, there was enough for me to be like, okay, that's something I want to explore. But um, it would be great if we could have more of the music. And I think that's a bit of an impediment for the show because, because you know, the, per- the person themselves is only going to be so interested in the music, is what we're here for. Yeah. Um, or at least it's what I'm here for. Uh, and i think i think maybe that's a bit of a roadblock but this is a podcast that i'm i am i am fascinated by it and i'm gonna check in with it in future because um a lot of these guys because they're not celebrated that makes their perspective even more interesting i think because they're not the people who maybe earned all the money maybe got all the all the limelight uh they're views on their experiences particularly when they were working with big bands um with people who were you know household celebrities in some cases uh there's something very interesting there there's a you know i'm fascinated by that and uh uh, and and i'd like to revisit it i think so so yeah it's a good podcast uh with a presenter that i enjoy but um i feel there are some impediments
0: that absolutely fair i think um that's the thing for me as well is that I enjoy going to this podcast because I'm like where am I going to get an opportunity to hear some of these drummers talk for so long and I think obviously if it was all about the music there'd be something quite dehumanising about the fact that you know the songwriter is given the opportunity to lay out their biography and then you get to the drummer and it's like so tell me about the things that you hit and, you know, that's it. But definitely to have those forces balanced out so you have a bit of biography, but also the music having a presence as well, I I, I think that's totally fair.
3: That's a great point, though, Jack, that they are ignored. So to hear their biography is important.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, Adam and Bob, you host your podcast, Diane, which is all about Twin Peaks. I should say I'm currently going through the entire series again with your podcast as a companion after a recommendation on episode party from a previous guest, actually, and uh, it's been so incredibly enriching. Um, Give us a bit about what Diane is firstly and then also just yeah where can people check it out if they're interested
3: okay so Diane is the, is the podcast that I do with obviously Bob and my brother my twin brother Mark and my sister Rosie uh, and Rosie and I sort of came up with the concept together I think uh, we were all kind of huge Twin Peaks fans and we felt like there was a, a gap in the market for the kind of podcast that we wanted to do because previously there were lots of people um, very much focusing on their own sort of subjective experiences with Twin Peaks or or looking at it from the point of view of the production and what we wanted to do was explore Twin Peaks uh, as a work of art really and sort of how it exists within culture and um, you know it's an incredibly complicated um, and very very rich work and we felt like okay we can start doing this and we can start looking at it episode by episode, but ultimately, you know, we want to explore the themes in Twin Peaks, we want to explore the ideas in Twin Peaks, and we're still going 70 episodes later. Um, (laughs) And and we we don't feel like we've exhausted it at all. We feel like we can go much, much longer. I mean, we're also dipping into the works of David Lynch more generally. But, um, I don't know, I mean, for me, Diane has been a it's been a wonderful experience and it's allowed me to think about this this thing that has been so precious to me for such a long time because I think um, seldom do we get things that we really love we often don't get to really think about or explore in the ways that maybe we might have the ambition to and doing the podcast has enabled us to do that enables us to do that as a group um and kind of celebrate it together and uh, it seems to be working we we have a great many listeners and um we uh yeah I don't know it's good <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you enjoy about it I mean uh, you're saying it's enriched your experience
0: yeah I think it's the just the fact that you pull on so much that I never contemplated I think I'm especially with Twin Peaks. I don't have the bandwidth in my mind to comprehend a whole lot of stuff that's going on within Twin Peaks, having only watched it once through. And I think what I okay. wanted was a podcast that allowed me to then mind the other half, the underbelly of what I wasn't able to ingest first time round and as much as possible. I've tried other podcasts and they i think the problem with twin Peaks is sometimes they just stumble over themselves and they go oh when she does that face it's just oh and i'm getting nothing from that you know because i felt yeah. that but why uh yeah so that's what i really love is that you guys are burrowing down and um, putting words in places which connect a lot of dots for me as to why i'm so drawn to it and also things that i just didn't even see so yeah it's a beautiful podcast i Love the bananas out of it. So yeah. Thanks oh, that's for so it.
2: nice to hear. <laughs>
3: Thank you. Bro. I love your podcast too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, this is
0: so lovely. Um, well, what a lovely, warm, fuzzy place to end. I mean, Freddie. Uh, if people are, um, oh well, in fact, we should link people to Diane. Where's the best place for them to check out Diane online?
3: Uh, Diane.libsyn.com or on iTunes or your podcast uh, provider
0: lovely freddie if people want to
1: check out episode party where should they be headed we'll we'll put links to diane in our show notes as well as along with all of the podcasts we talk about um so yeah they'll be in your podcast app if you're listening right now um but you'll also find them all at uh episode.party www.episode.party on the internet and um if you want to share a recommendation for a podcast with us we haven't spoke about yet uh you can tweet us we're at episode underscore party or you could email us we're hello at episode.party
0: beautiful well adam bob thank you once again for joining us we didn't quite make four hours but we've done well oh, <laughs> thank yeah.
2: you okay we're just gonna have to come keep coming back until we make it, let's yeah. just, do
0: it. <laughs> just loop <laughs> it Perfect. if it stops
2: it yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh jack freddy thank you ever so much for inviting us on really really had a nice time with you both thank you no not no worries cool it's been lovely thank you so much thank you and to everyone
0: listening we will see you next time bye-bye Goodbye. <laughs> hi it's jack again thank you so much for listening to episode party if you've got a moment it would mean a lot to us if you could give us a review and rating on apple podcasts it helps put the word out about episode party and we really appreciate it as well thanks so much